0: Of the world, this is Paper Cuts with Brad and Jay. I'm the one you love. I'm Jay. Thanks so much for stopping by. There's Brad. It's his show. It's his show. That's why I'm the host,
1: and we just love Jay.
0: Now you know it's all natural. I mean, you know, nothing's rehearsed, right? No,
1: absolutely nothing is rehearsed on this show. God, you just suck life out of me. It
0: feels like you've got You've series. got a lot grayer since we started this. I, I have. Honest. I know. I have joining us this evening c s humble we are live and here we go depending on where you are it's a stormy friday for some of us <laughs> just happy friday everyone welcome to paper cuts that's uh brad proctor over there the i'm jade real the realest host of the show i <laughs> uh, appreciate everyone joining us this evening uh we have someone this evening that's taken some time out of his busy schedule and when i start naming these books you'll be like damn he is pretty busy <laughs> he's uh busy. he's the writer of the Blackwells novels there's what mm-hmm. nine ten fifteen of those <laughs> <year>.
2: <laughs> no uh, no it,
0: you may have a copy of all these subtle deceits and uh the second one all the prospect around us he's also the writer of uh that light sublime trilogy we were just talking about that off the air uh you may I know Brad just finished up Massacre at Yellow Hill. Damn, no breaks at all. But he made an exception for the show tonight. Happy to be here. (laughs) So welcome to the program. Thank you. C.S. Humble. What's going Uh, on, Seth?
3: Oh, nothing much. Just hanging out with my two best buds, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Talking bourbon, baseball politics. Baseball (laughs) politics. How much I don't like Bill O'Reilly. Let's just get that out there.
0: (laughs) We, We both hate Brad. He's a Yankees fan. So, i mean what are you gonna true.
1: do i mean they're only the best so it's it's fun to hate mm. it's cool okay we'll what's <laughs> Cardinals
3: might have something to say about it but that's yeah. fine are, are we saying um, what we're drinking tonight everyone or my
1: best over? buddy is uh it's a red sox fan so we like to talk trash on each other
3: just mm. not all the time constantly well give me give me his phone number and we'll we'll have a chat <laughs> he and i will become better friends than you and i yeah. ever will <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a little eagle rare tonight.
0: You have an eagle rare tonight? Okay, yeah, wonderful. Eagle rare. I'm going to continue with my maker's mark here, <laughs> the, the basic stuff, the the basic. Seth, what do you got? Well, uh, I just have a Pepsi. <laughs> a Pepsi? No,
3: uh, just coffee tonight. Gearing coffee. up He's for y'all. Pro- Professional. Mm.
0: So that I'll start slurring words and passing out. <laughs> and he'll just take over.
3: So here's what I've been waiting to tell you for years, <laughs> even though we don't know each other.
0: Right. So congratulations on all the uh, pieces of work floating around there with your name on it, and I all the stuff that. coming from the future. Uh, because it looks like you have a couple of series that you're working, you're diving into and working on, and. Uh you know, someone like me, I'm gonna read them and cross all the universes together and get mixed <laughs> up, and it'd be like the extras meet the Western worlds, and I don't know. So, how do you keep everything separated apart and straight?
3: Uh so that's a great question. That's a great question, Jay. Um, and I have a multi-tiered <laughs> answer for it that I've been preparing over the last three hours. It's got right. six
1: bullet points, right. he's ready to go. Actually, <laughs> us, if we can go to this
3: PowerPoint yeah. presentation, do I've got Let's right do here. You, we, did we pre-approve <laughs> that? It's in the video budget. Writer, yeah, we yeah. pull it up. Yeah. <laughs> right now, uh, so I'm a I'm a glacier writer. Um, I'm also a by the uh I'm a little bit by the seat of my pants writer. I started working on. I've been writing professionally for about 15 years. Um, and uh, I've developed the idea for Blackwells. I don't know, probably about 10 years ago, and I was slowly. That, that all came about because of uh, a little short story that I wrote that never sold. Uh, but I love this idea of uh, a place inside of the United States um, that, hey, uh, you know what, Brad? Uh, love you, Rob, too. Uh, happy to let <laughs> y'all know that. Uh, but I had this idea for Blackwells uh, for a long time, but uh, the first novel I ever wrote was The Massacre of Yellow Hill. And that was actually because of a conversation I had with Joe Lansdale. Joe, R. Lansdale, of course, one of the great Texas writers. Um, and, uh, Joe and I had a conversation at the Howard Days festival in Cross Plains, Texas a long time ago. Um, and I got an encouraging word from him because I wasn't selling at all. I was unable to get an agent, uh, for any agents out there who are actually looking for a weird Western <laughs> writer, I'm yes. available. Uh, but I had also never made a professional sale, um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I got a really encouraging conversation with Joe and I went back to where I was working in the oil field at the time in Midland, Texas. And I went back and I wrote this, uh, short story, um, and about two weeks later it sold. And I was very, very happy about that. Uh, that story actually appears in my little short story, excuse me, my little short story collection, Minotaur, a collection of horror. Um, but how do I keep it all together? Um, I so I do a couple things. Um, I have a pretty good memory. Um, I've worked really hard on being able to maintain uh, what are what is a, a collective universe inside of my head. Right, uh, and, and you know, readers who read the Blackwell series and uh, that light sublime will find that there are deep connections there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just sort of re- remember it, and I have a great editor. Uh, Marissa Van Uden, who does all of the editing uh, for That Light, Sublime, and Blackwells, and she does a tremendous job of keeping a series Bible uh, for both of those that helps me out. But I don't typically use it a whole lot. I've I've had the idea for a considerable amount of time, and it's all just sort of up there.
0: I was going to say, it's probably hard for an editor, too, if you're using the same one for both series to jump back and forth. as far as having continuity and getting she does a great
3: she does a great job and we're working on all the prospect around us um there was a i did a description of one of the primary buildings that had uh that had been you know featured in uh all these subtle deceits and marissa goes i i'm pretty sure you described this this way you know she (laughs) left me in a note and she goes check here and i was like oh Shit, I did do that. Uh, so my, while my memory is certainly strong, it's not perfect in any capacity. So Marissa is uh, an integral part of everything that I'm trying to do and build. Yeah, she's right. wonderful. That's cool to have someone get your back like that to help you out with those small details
1: when you're doing the, the broader story.
3: Yeah, she's wonderful.
1: So with I noticed while reading the mascot Yellow Hill you did mention blackwells in there so they, they're in the same universe then right correct
3: yeah they are in the same universe um they are sp- spread apart by a significant timeline of events um mm-hmm. but uh there is it and I don't I don't really like to put it this way but in many ways that light sublime serves as sort of like the Hobbit to Blackwells okay. which is more of the Lord of the Rings culmination. No. Nine. Okay, Jay. <laughs> yeah, sorry.
1: Well, that's fine. uh I, I get what you're saying, Seth. I, <laughs> I, I, I get. I get it too. I just. I just.
0: Okay. I, I'm just joking. I'm sorry. I get it right, too. No, it's fine. <laughs> yeah.
1: So is that the? Are they going to be that closer related once the, the light sublime is all out? I mean, I know they're like a couple mm-hmm. hundred years apart or so because Black was yeah. a more
3: modern day. That light sublime serves as the primer uh to everything that are the primary setting of the Black series, okay. yeah. But it's not not essential. Like you don't have to read them mm-hmm. uh you know uh together in order to get the full effect but it certainly enriches it for the reader I think. Yeah. Are we seeing characters
0: when... cross over or any are going any any kind of references to characters crossing over? I I'm think... wondering if we're gonna have the CS umble world like the Stephen King world basically.
3: Well uh oh god I'd hate for anyone <laughs> to call it the, the umble verse wouldn't that be horrible <laughs> not that be terrible for everybody? Trademark.
0: Trademark <laughs> right
3: there. Um, it doesn't record it too, so we have
0: proof. Just, <laughs> just in case right. anybody tries to take it. So May
1: 12th, 2013. It's, it's taken. Can't do it now.
3: It is. What year are you at, buddy? Uh,
1: 2023
0: is what I said, Jay.
3: <laughs> it is a collective universe that is all sewn together with, um, not to aggrandize it, but with a, a, a large amount of care uh, that mm-hmm. is tied all together, yeah.
1: I'm sure that that takes more on your end too to connect these different. I mean, because it's a trilogy and what it's five book series is what the mm-hmm. Blackwell's is going to be to get yeah, all together. And- mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Uh, Blackwell's is uh, plotted out to be a five book series with the ending already having been written. So it's nice. not going to be a Patrick Rothfuss or George R. R. <laughs> R. Martin situation. Or we're waiting forever. <laughs> right. Um, and not to, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade on those two. It's just, I uh, I've never had a difficulty uh, sewing up a series, uh, but then mm-hmm. again, I don't write, you know,
1: thousand-page books. Right, <laughs>
3: thousand-page books. Yeah. Right. So you have the ending done. Correct. I've already written the final chapter in the Blackwell series and the epilogue. Those but are the, both the, the books leading up to it are not done. Or are are they? So I've written, I've written the first three books in the Blackwell series. Okay. Um, the third book is all that mankind fails to bear. And I've started working on the fourth book in the series, "All Our Strange Glory," and then the series ends with the fifth book, "All for the Fiery Hunt." Okay. Oh, I'm pretty like was
0: Question: It was because I was thinking, okay, what if you start, you know, veering off into a different direction? But I mean, it seems like no. you already have the base for each one, so right. it didn't even make sense. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. The I don't know. I think my monitors. Can y'all still hear me? Oh my! Here sorry, my good. monitors both shut off, and I was like, "What the hell's happening here?"
0: I didn't uh, like your answer, so we shut you right. down. That's what <laughs> it's
3: a small game. One thanks so- CSO so much. He'll never be on the show again. That's his swan <laughs> song. Right. So um, yeah, all the all those books are not necessarily planned out, but the broad strokes are there. All of the characters have been introduced um, by the end of the second book, and then it all ties together in the final three books when everybody sort of comes together. Great. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I find it interesting that you're doing a five book series in a trilogy. Cause usually with horror, you don't really get series very often, maybe a trilogy every now and then mm-hmm. usually they're standalones, maybe a sequel. So did you, were both of these planned out ahead of time? This is going to be a trilogy or this is gonna be multiple books or do they grow and expand as you were writing the books?
3: I think, I think I'm just sort of a series writer Okay. Um, I'm always any, and this is probably because I have a deep love for uh the Campbellian monomyth. I was clearly influenced by Star Wars. Um, you know, so like we could so talk
1: about that
0: for an hour and a half. And no, no this, this
3: will become a Star Wars podcast immediately. Yeah. So as soon as you step to. away, it's for those
0: was... listening right now, I have to step away in about 10 or 15 minutes just for a few <laughs> minutes. Don't worry, it's not because they're going to talk Star Wars when I'm not here. Uh, oh, okay. Other stuff, but I'll be back there's, there's, five minutes.
3: <laughs> there it is, right my there. Gosh. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> we're just shutting down desk now. Today. No,
0: this is a Star Wars free zone,
3: everyone. <laughs> well, I hate that, Jay. <laughs> Me too, Jay. Another um, just reason a, I hate you. Have a little bit of fantasy and love in your life. That's <laughs> all we're trying to do. Some joy. <laughs> so you're color. inspired
1: by you're inspired by things like Star Wars and the big epic kind
2: of absolutely like
3: Star Wars, uh, the Indi- uh, the Indiana Jones films. Um, were a big part of my childhood um, and so i'm and a lot of the writing that i've always done sort of works out in that not necessarily the hero's journey um because i try to not subvert that but i don't like leaning too much in it where we see the you know the wheel i don't, I don't typically like to write like that uh, but it did influence me at a very young age and so i'm always thinking like well, there have to be multiple characters inside of this universe whose stories can't be told in a singular book because they're not the primary protagonist. But mm-hmm. I'm always building character journeys outside of the main narrative. And then they branch out. The characters decide to do things. And uh, and that expands the story beyond, you know, one one or two books.
2: It mm-hmm. we- kind of
0: makes it. um hard to kill off people or, or does it I nope. mean, because nope. okay so they're not going to come back it's not going to I'd be, say it like, make it easier because you've got or... so many more characters to do well yeah that's true too so
3: i have a rule i have a rule and a lot a lot of people hate me for this but and they'll <laughs> say that i'm pretentious for saying it but what are you going to do what the hell um characters make decisions in the narrative on their own at times um there are things that i don't plot out that characters make decisions and those decisions Always have to have consequences. Every decision has to have a consequence. If it's not, then I don't know why the hell it's in there, other than Mm -hmm. to just fill pages, and that's what—that's not what I'm here for. Uh, So, when a character makes a decision that has adverse or that has adverse consequences, then I always let those play out, no matter what, even if I love the character. Mm
0: -hmm. I like that you're you're letting it ride the way it wants to ride. Right. Absolutely.
3: I think anything outside of that, you start to get it like. And again, not to not to speak ill of other writers who have different processes, which are absolutely valid, but the characters, if the characters aren't making decisions, then I don't know what we're doing here. Right. If there are no consequences, then like I get it. Like if you have a like if you're building a series around a character like you can't kill Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, like, yeah, not if you want it to be a a big franchise series, but no one in any of my series, uh, they are not safe no one is safe. Even when I know the ending, the ending is never tied to a specific character surviving.
1: Okay. So is it the ending that you have written already for the Blackwells? Is it ambiguous enough where if someone maybe dies or someone doesn't die, it's not going to affect the ending?
3: It's not so much that it's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It is that the ending does not require them to survive. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> that and that is sense. how
0: you talk around the answer <laughs> <laughs> to keep people satisfied.
3: Might. All right, CS Humble, politician, Texas. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Looking for your vote. I, I do
1: love books and series that are not afraid to kill off characters, like A Song of Ice and Fire. Just mm-hmm. You think Ned Stark is the main character, and and he's dead. And you think right. Rob Stark's going to take his place, and then he's dead. It right. just completely subverts your expectations for and makes it way less predictable. And then you do that, and then everyone is on the board. Everyone's right in danger, more- and that makes it more more dramatic for the reader or the viewer. If it's, you know, it's a TV show or whatever.
0: I love that twist when it, that happens, like in a horror film, you're like, thinking, okay, it's this person. Oh no, right. that person's dead now. So right. Yeah. Oh I mean, yeah.
3: Right. Most famously done by psycho, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. or yeah, I see that in film, there've been other ones who've done it before, but you know, you think the whole time for the first 40 minutes of the movie, somebody's the main character and it turns out they're not, nope. they're the biggest kill yeah. in, in the film. Right. So, so yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think with every great story and George R. R. Martin is a huge influence of mine, although his book fever dream is actually my, it's the book that oh, I love, love the most. I love his. that.
1: That's a great book.
3: Right. I think it's, I honestly believe it's Martin's best work, uh, not mm-hmm. in terms of his mechanics. Cause obviously his mechanics grow over the course of his uh, song of a uh, song of fire and ice series. Mm-hmm. Um, But that book so completely is so well completely distilled and the stakes are consistently raised constantly. The tension consistently ratchets up. And as he does that, um, the trauma that happens to the characters is all the more real to you. Like the epilogue for Fever Dream is probably my favorite epilogue of any book ever. I think it's absolutely flawless. Is that not part of the series? I don't think I've heard of it. No, it's, no, it all, it's
1: like steamboats and on the Ohio River and Kentucky. Yeah, it's, River, like, uh, it's like if Vampires,
3: uh, if Dracula so like and Mark Twain were on a steamboat yeah. together. Oh, yeah. Okay. It, it's real good. And it's
1: not a thousand pages. It's maybe, what, 250, 300? I, I want to
3: say it's like 345, 47 pages, something like that. Yeah. I read it at least twice a year, is how much I love really? it. Really? Yeah. Yeah, nice. it's up there for me. with... Books that I read at least once a year, like *Lonesome Dove*, uh, *The Fever Dream*, and I and I read uh, *The Fellowship of the Ring* at least once a year. Do, do, nice. do you pull something new out of each time, or is it yeah, just without a, question? Like a warm
0: blanket. Okay.
3: Yeah, without question. Uh, there's always something. There's always something to glean from great writers. People, you know, and I and I don't mean just the modern writers of our time, but you know, there's reading *East of Eden* reading the the opening to East of Eden by John Steinbeck, there is always something to be gleaned from those opening pages with the way that mm-hmm. he describes the Salinas Valley.
1: I like what Sadie says here. I'm assuming it's Sadie, not Ashley. We mm-hmm. with our hearts, so crush them. And that's what, what Stephen King says, kill your darlings or whatever. The kill your is darlings. The yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: From on writing. That's always that. And I think that that's good advice. I think, with that trope becoming so common now because so many people are told for the last, let's see, he wrote on writing, I think in the mid to late eighties or early nineties. So for, for 30 years, people have been told to kill your darlings. Well, now that's sort of, that's shifted to make them suffer and you can (laughs) kill, you can kill them. And this is something that Martin does very, very well is that he will kill his darlings, but what he'll also do is prolong their suffering over a long narrative arc. And you're like, how much longer is this going to go on? Yeah. And so I think that that's a good piece of advice for readers now is yes, kill your dollar darlings, but first make them suffer.
1: Yeah. And I think that goes into, you know, how great of a writer the author is, is you actually care about these characters. Absolutely. over the time. It's not just, oh, they're killed, they're dead. Who cares? But if it affects you, in that raw emotional state, you know, breaks your heart, crushes your heart because you're right. attached because the writing is so good and you're attached to the characters and their decisions they made along the way and the losses they've suffered or whatever else has happened. Right. To them.
3: And the ghost of that character, the ghost of the character you kill should be like uh Hamlet's father in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning of Hamlet, when he's visited by the ghost of his, of his father recently murdered, the ghost is what is, you know some people say is the most important character in the play because of how it pushes hamlet into not only madness but it drives everything that he wants to do and so the ghosts of your characters that you do kill should have an effect on the narrative if or else you were just killing them for a plot device and if you're doing that then you're cheating and that feels like a pie in the face and nobody wants that yeah yeah so i
0: mean it it are your inspirations coming more from some of these classic books as opposed to horror? So it sounds like you're, you know, not to make it sound like anyone's dumb or anything, but you're well-read with some of these outside of horror. We talked a lot More, of t- more like, diverse. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked to a lot of people who, you know, say, well, you know, I started reading Stephen King when I was five or whatever. Sure. And only their backgrounds only horror stuff. but I mean, you're just listening to some of the books you've read and everything. You're drawing inspirations from some of these others. I, I wouldn't expect like you know, horror writer. Your content to come from that. Sure. How are you pulling these these inspirations from those? So, if, if that makes sense. Yeah,
3: yeah. Just to be clear, I was not a reader growing up. Um, I uh, I didn't really read my first novel until I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I knew that I wanted to, I knew I wanted to be a writer uh, very young. But the problem is, you have to read if you want to become a writer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, helps out a little bit. It helps out a little bit. Just and just I, Mitch. I found very early. I have a mentor of mine. Who's also one of my dearest friends, a brother to me. His name is Brad Ellison. He's also a writer. Um, and he put me on a path of putting me across a swath of fiction. He gave me a mm-hmm. hundred books that I needed to read. And over the course of three years, I read those books and it was everything from Plato's, the Republic to, uh, Musashi, uh, to, you know, uh, of uh, uh, you know Les Miserables, like I read pretty much everything across the span, and uh-huh. I found that there were certain writers that I deeply connected with: Steinbeck, McMurtry, William Peter Blatty, people who wrote with an extensive amount of emotion in right. their characters, mm-hmm. um, and that deeply affected me. And so, what I would do is I I stole a trick from Hunter S. Thompson, is I would simply The passages that deeply affected me, I would set it up in front of my computer and I would type them out like and just so I could get the rhythm to see Mm -hmm. how they were able to pull off certain mechanics Um, in the exorcist. There is a the the very there two of my favorite portions of the novel are one uh, when the housekeeper, Carl, goes to visit his daughter uh, in a hotel room. Uh, to give her money because she is addicted to drugs. Spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) And then the other is Father Lancaster Marin. He shows up twice in the novel, once at the beginning and then once at the end. And Father Marin's appearance in the third act of The Exorcist is one of the greatest pieces of American writing ever done. Period. Uh, And that's obviously an opinion, Mm -hmm. but I would say that, that I would match that up with, with anything. I'd match it up with, you know, chapter 42 of Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which I consider to be one of the greatest pieces of cosmic horror writing ever written. I feel like Melville is the grandfather of cosmic horror with Moby Dick. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've ever heard that. ...equate cosmic
1: horror <laughs> yes. to Moby Dick before. That's an interesting take. I, need, I still yep. need to read Moby Dick. It's, it's on the bucket list of books to read. <laughs> right. right.
3: Right. And everybody's, you know... A lot of people will say, you know, oh, I've read Moby Dick. And a lot of people who say they've read, read Moby Dick haven't really read Moby Dick all the way through. I mean, I was mm-hmm. that way for a long time. Like, oh, yeah, of course I've read that. Yeah. I mean, I've read everything, right? Yeah.
0: Uh, well, I the difference between reading it and, and taking it in, you know. Right.
3: I, like, one of the other things that I do to try and get a meter, uh, the, the, the mechanical quality of writing is I will memorize large swaths of fiction. So like Uh the whole opening of concerning hobbits for, uh, from the Lord of the Rings, like I can recite the entire opening chapter from memory. It's like a party trick that I'll do, but I do, (laughs) but I do the same thing for like chapter 42 of, of Moby Dick, a lot of Edgar Allan Poe's stuff, especially the mask of the red death. Um, That's a good one. And the opening to, my favorite Star Wars novel, "The Revenge of the Sith" by M- Matthew Woodring Stover. His yeah. opening, the introduction to that book, is one of the best pieces of writing you will find in uh, genre fiction anywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to go back just a little bit. You, you said you didn't start reading till you're, you know, older. Mm-hmm. Usually it's the other way around that you start reading younger. Like I was, I read a lot in elementary school, then like middle school till like late twenties, I didn't read at all and got back into it again. So what was it that got you into reading as, you know, uh, an adult? Was there something that just clicked and you just want to read? I want to write now or.
3: I wanted to be a good writer. Um, And I mentioned, I had a conversation, my friend, Brad, he was an excellent writer. Brad is still the first, he's the best first draft writer I've ever read. Like Mm -hmm. across the whole span of authors that I've worked with. Um, And I knew that he could write well. And, I, I said, hey, I want you to teach me how to do that. And he said, okay, well, here's what you do. You write a short story. And I did a Batman short story because I'd only <laughs> really read comic books. And uh, I get, I wrote it that night. And I gave it to him. And I go, okay, what do you think? And he read it. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I see what you're doing. But you don't understand the English language. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay. He's like, you are writing in English, but you don't know how to use it. I Uh said, okay, so show me. And then we developed a very deep uh, relationship uh, through that mentorship. Um, And it's, uh, that was a a fulcrum point in my life. And he said, if you want to get, if you want to get better at learning how to do this, you have to see how the other greats have done it. And Mm -hmm. so you need to read these books. He gave me the list. I was reading them. I moved out of college, um, was still trying to develop my My writing style, my voice, um, the way that I like to put it is that whenever a person starts writing, they start digging down into themselves. They start hollowing out this space and you have to get past things like power fantasy, like, oh, obviously this character is you killing all the people you don't like. (laughs) So you move past that and then you keep digging down and you get into the trauma of your childhood and your insecurities. And now characters are dealing with that. And ultimately... You get down into this wellspring inside of yourself, a place Mm -hmm. where only you can write in that narrative voice. And that's like the truth of us. That's what people want to hear. That's your voice. And you, over time, you stone those walls in, right? And then anytime that you need to, you can dip down into that well and you draw out what are the stories that only you can write. And that takes a significant amount of time. It takes work um and it means coming to the page every time you come to it um with reverence respect and knowing that you have to get out of the way um mm-hmm. but yeah i i didn't uh read a tremendous amount as a kiddo um but i became a voracious reader uh and have remained that way until today now at 39 nice
1: so it, it's interesting were you did you just have these stories in your head that you wanted to tell not being a reader. I don't know. I just, not that it's I, weird. It sounds horrible to phrase it this way. No, I it's all right. Found it weird that you didn't
3: really read, but you wanted to be a writer. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was, uh, as a child, I was an inveterate liar. Um, <laughs> I really was, I was, uh, I was always making up lies for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, to stay out of trouble or to impress people. Um, and so what I realized is that I was just a storyteller, so I thought it might be fun to turn that into something that would be artistic and not just destructive to people. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I, I remember after having seen, um, I think it was Scream. I think it was Scream. Uh, I knew that I wanted, to, I wanted to try and do that. I wanted to try and make okay. people feel those feelings um, of fear and, uh, loss and trauma, um, which, which sounds, sounds now like we're trying to get into a a therapy (laughs) session. Uh, but no, I, I, there was a part of me that always wanted to be a storyteller. Um, because there's, that's really just at the root of me. That's what I am.
1: Mm -hmm. There's a, a question in the chat. Let me go back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, from whimsy's whimsy dearest do you whimsy ever plan on venturing more into grimdark fantasy or dark sci-fi uh
3: thank you so much for the quest question uh, whimsy dearest uh so i do have a dark science fiction story uh in my minotaur collection it's pr- a lot of people say that it's the one of the best short stories that i have written um it's called there is only the hunt which uh the best tag or the best elevator pitch I could give for it is if the Wachowskis had done ready player one. Okay. Um, and uh, it doesn't involve any characters falling in love with the protagonist for no reason at all. <laughs> uh, but I think, so that is uh, dark sci-fi. Um, I also have an epic fantasy novel. It's about 114,000 words. Uh, that All I'm right. still shopping around. It's called the Threadbare Prince, um, and that is grimdark fantasy. Or it's not really grimdark, but it is. Uh, it's it's dark. It's dark fantasy. There are deep elements of horror to it, but it follows more closely that Cambellian monomyth uh, that okay. we were talking about earlier. I'm still shopping that one around.
1: Has Sadie read that one? The dark fantasy. Yeah,
3: <laughs> Sadie has <laughs> read the Threadbare. Sadie's read everything I've ever written.
1: Okay yeah is a uh, the dark fantasy one the threadbare prince is that going to be a series or is that a standalone or could maybe potentially it,
3: it is a it is currently written as a standalone uh but mm-hmm. i have a three book series that i would like to do with that <laughs> yeah um but uh i mean that's way 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 down the road unless someone were to say hey you know this is harper collins we'd love for you to <laughs> we'd love for you to write these three books and i would get on it immediately
1: you ever think about indie pub in that one just doing it yourself
3: I did uh for a time uh one of my friends uh Laird Baron, uh who is a, obviously a champion uh mm-hmm. of the horror community um he read it and I talked to him about you know should I self-pub it and he said don't self-pub this book just be patient okay um and so I've been holding on to the threadbare prince for 4 years now mm-hmm. um Uh, It's just uh, hasn't found a home yet. I hope that it will. I've invested a great deal uh, into that novel. I think it represents some of my uh, best storytelling that I've done Mm -hmm. outside of, I think that my best books right now would be All That Mankind Fails to Bear, which which is the third book in the Blackwell series. And then uh, The Light of a Black Star, which is the third and final book for that Light Sublime trilogy.
1: Okay. There's a question from James in the chat mm-hmm. uh, for someone that hasn't read anything by you. What would you suggest first? He prefers novels over short stories.
3: I would say, uh, we, the best place to start with me is probably all these subtle deceits. Mm-hmm. Um, or the massacre, at yellow hill. I, uh, those two. Cause it
1: depends on kind of what you're into. Cause right, what you're different.
3: into. Also the storytelling voice is quite different between the two of them. Um, with Blackwells being a more modern uh, modern setting, it doesn't use the anachronistic language or and it, the action style is much different. So uh, I would say if you're looking for something cinematic, then I would say The Mask or Yellow Hill. If you're looking for something more introspective and thriller-based, then you'd want to start with All These Subtle Deceits.
1: Mm-hmm. If you like The Exorcist, read All These Subtle Deceits. <laughs> That's so, like, so kind
3: of you to say. It is.
1: It's good. So I don't know. So you, since you are into fantasy, you might have picked this up, but the, I feel like that, uh, all these subtle deceits kind of felt like Harry Dresden a little bit, like it's Absolutely. completely different, completely mm-hmm. different, but I, I don't know. Something about it had those kind of vibes with Harry yeah, Dresden.
3: Uh, and, uh, Jim butcher's series, the Dresden files, uh, was a, you know, I went through all of those books. Um, yes, uh sadie will point out that all these subtle deceits is demon possession yeah Uh, it absolutely deals with that a great deal and it has a i believe a unique spin on the genre something you won't find anywhere else um but uh what was your question again remind me i got knocked off (laughs) course by sadie (laughs) Hmm?
1: now did you have any influence or did you pick up on that it's kind of feels like jim butcher
3: oh yeah yeah, um, absolutely um Jim Again, it's
1: completely different. I'm not saying it's you know, it's not sure. Dresden
3: Files at all, but just, there's something, some vibe there that... And I think what it is, um, the uh, there are elements of the paranormal private investigator yeah, um, that Jim Butcher has really branded over, I think, I want to say it's 12 or 13 years now with the Dresden Files books.
0: It's um, been going on for
3: a while, yeah. Right. And one of the one of the things I stole from butcher is a character in the Dresden files is the city of Chicago. The city mm-hmm. is as important a character as, as other characters, um, yeah, as other characters are. Mm-hmm. And so when I was writing Blackwells, I wanted Blackwells to be maybe not the center character, but it's certainly, uh, certainly an evolving landscape that I've, that both makes decisions and affects the characters living within the city's expanse. Yeah.
1: Like just uh William Daniels. That's his name, correct? I'm mm-hmm. horrible at names. He just mm-hmm. reminded me
3: of, of Harry Dresden
1: a lot. There's a of, little bit there. His own. He's, he's got this past trauma mm-hmm. built up
3: in him. He's got his office. You know, just a little nuanced Yeah. Things, like, yeah, that yeah. feels like Dresden. He certainly, he, you know, he is a product of, um, Yeah. uh, So James is right. Dresden Files borrowed from Necroscope. I think, I think there's validity to that. James Um, has been
1: me to try to read Necroscope for a long time now. It's on my, also on my list.
3: (laughs) I've, I uh, read Necroscope. Uh, It's not one of my favorite books, but I can appreciate what it's done for the genre. Yeah. But William Daniels has certainly cut in that idea of the private investigator, Mm -hmm. uh, Sam Spade, uh, maybe maybe not uh, Sam Spade so much as Philip Marlowe. I feel like Marlowe would be a, a better example. Uh, but moving down the line of, you know, taking the, you know, down these mean streets, a man must go who he himself is not mean.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, a tarnished knight. Um, I think there's definitely elements of that there. And Jim Butcher has done a tremendous job of that with Harry Dresden. So there's elements of Dresden there. I also have to say that there's elements of, uh, John Constantine, uh, oh, yeah. from uh, good... yeah, created by uh, Alan Moore, mm-hmm. um, in his original run on Swamp Thing, so yeah, there are definitely elements there.
1: Well, back Noles Jay. here, <laughs> sorry Jay, about that, guys. Jay had a potty break,
0: <laughs> it's to go difficulties go Got quotes. some storms coming through. Kelsey, actually, actually, I, get, I just had to, to get a just... refill is what it was, <laughs> tremendous. <laughs>
1: Kelsey finished the seats today and it's amazing.
3: I really appreciate that from Kelsey. Uh, thank you so much for reading it. Uh, it's a real treat to, to see that people enjoy the book. It's been a long, I mean, it's been a long road for me. Like I'm just now here, or I guess I shouldn't say I'm just now here. Like I've been around the horror community for a long time mm-hmm. um, and I've been trying to break in. And so I'm very appreciative and grateful uh, that the series, both series, uh have resonated with readers both the critical ones and the ones who are just buying because you know they love to read
1: yeah did uh boo because you don't like Yeah.
0: (laughs) sorry uh the deceits end the way you originally planned it to i mean i know earlier we were talking about you kind of have the final part done Mm -hmm. uh but there's a few spots in deceits where i thought it could go different directions did it end the way you set out to be originally or did it change any along the way
3: It changed enormously there. I got about uh, two thirds of the way through the book and a character came into the narrative who was previously in the story and they came and completely blew apart everything. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, I realized I just started writing a completely different book halfway through the first book. (laughs) Um, And so I had to I had to make the hard decision. I cut 20,000 words. From That's the original manuscript. 40, and I thousand. Had, wow. It it was not a happy moment in my life. <laughs> but I had to cut it and I went back to a critical fulcrum point in the narrative and I said, okay, let's have the characters who have agency in this book. Who the book is about, they have to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. And then that happened with Lauren and William. Yeah. Okay. Without so giving it agency away.
1: Put on them by somebody else at that point. The, old, the older version.
3: Yes. And so I put that, I took those 20,000 words. I threw them into a manuscript or I threw them into a document and then that helped inform what all the prospect around us was going to be about. Okay. Gotcha. So it wasn't okay. a complete loss in it. No, but it was very, very it was painful. A, it was a tough day. <laughs> it was it's a very sweaty, tough
0: sweaty day. Nights, angry it's,
3: typing. <laughs> it's tough because I, because I was reading it and I'm like, what is the problem here? Like what is going on? I go, Oh, I've completely screwed myself, and I. <laughs> well, made so that's what I was
0: alluding to earlier when you said that you had the the ending done. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's what I was trying to get at when I was saying, "What if you paint yourself into some corners, so you have to change everything." So, I mean, that's a fine example. I mean, luckily, it's the first one,
3: right? To the series first, where right. you can make a change, right? And I I think now with because I, ha- I didn't have the ending written when I was writing deceits, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So I wrote I wrote deceits. I made the that catastrophic error. I cut the 20,000 words. I put that into prospect. And then as I was working through prospect, I sort of began to understand where everything was headed. And I knew that once I was able to get prospect done, I was going to have everything on the right path to where I wanted to go. And then one day I was, I had finished prospect. I was working on all that mankind fails to bear. And I go, that's the ending. And so then I stopped working on All That Mankind Fails to Bear, and then I spent the rest of the day writing the last chapter and the epilogue for the series.
0: So how long did um,
3: Deceits take from beginning to end to write? Uh, Deceits took me uh, three and a half months, okay, uh, four months. So I, t- I typically write, like last year I wrote four novels. Um, okay. I'm a very fast writer when I know what direction I'm heading. And that's because I have a crippling anxiety about not writing because I'm a workaholic, uh, which right. is super unhealthy. And when I'm not working, I say this a lot, but I'm miserable to be around. <laughs> like, if
0: <laughs> I was wondering because I mean, we, we were talking earlier about how you're you have two series going at the same time and trying to keep them straight. But also how are you juggling everything all at once plus having a life, job, family, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And yep. you be able to, you're able to release and have release dates and all of these other books ready to go. Like, how how's that happening? How are you? Because I mean, I I struggle with just regular everyday life. Well, Jay, you
1: missed it. He's got a hundred thousand word fantasy novel that's just sitting <laughs> around. I'm I'm not even. That's not even a joke. I'm being serious.
3: Right. Right. Uh, so I will say this. Like, and it's it's tough to talk about schedules without because I say this without ego. But for about the last. 10, 12 years, like I work about a 70 hour work week Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and my doctor, I recently went and talked to my doctor and and we are talking about uh, things and she goes, what does your work schedule look like? And I go, it's like 70 hours a week. And she's like,
2: no, yeah,
3: (laughs) you can't do that. Right. Um, But I'm wired a certain way. um, And I, there are times I wish that I could be different. um, But I, I just have, uh an incessant need a uh, desire a certain anchor to my self-respect which again these are unhealthy attitudes that no one should emulate um that's inextricably tied to my output and if i'm not writing i am very very frustrated and and i get highly anxious about things
1: mm. so it's a catharsis for you to write it's
3: oh it's it yeah it's, it's more of a nostalgia, like it's pain from a wound that I can't get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, this is all starting to sound very self <laughs> indulgent and very self important. I don't mean for it to sound that way. I'm just trying We're to not be gonna judge here.
0: Okay. We're not going to judge.
3: Uh, a lot of people be like, nah, go fuck that guy. He's saying he's working all these hours. Nobody does that. But but I I do tie a lot of self value to my output. And I've mm-hmm. talked with colleagues and saying, like, I'm trying to make a name in horror with volume Mm -hmm. and quality like i want to do both it james you're right it is absolutely a love
1: so i wanted to ask you said you've been writing professionally for uh, 15 years Mm -hmm. it feels like just recently you've got you've had all these books come out fairly recently how Mm -hmm. did you get hooked up with uh with sadie at uh dark heart and then with kevin over at uh, cemetery dance to get these books out
3: yeah uh so i uh i was talking with laird one day And I was like, hey, I wrote this book, all these subtle, all these subtle deceits. Mm -hmm. um, And I can't get anyone to grab it. Like no one would grab onto the book. Um, Like I've queried hundreds of agents over the course of the last three years. None of them are interested in my work, which is okay. They don't have to be. And Laird said, you know, Sadie is mother whore. She reviews books. Maybe send it over to her. And I said, "Uh, okay, cool. So I messaged her. Um, and I said, "Hey, you don't know who I am. I wrote this dark fantasy series. It is this dark fantasy book called *The Threadbare Prince*. Do you want to take a look at it?" And she goes, "I don't really do fantasy." She's like, "Do you? Do you have any horror?" And I said, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I just wrote this possession novel called *All These Subtle Deceits*." And she goes, "Well, I have a really fat stack of books I have to read because you know she's one of the most prolific reviewers living in the world today." Yeah. Um, and she said, "I'll you know I'll take a look at it." <clears throat> and I go, "Okay, cool." So. I sent it over to her and she read it and she had a very, very positive reaction to it. She asked me like, are you screwing with me? Like, are you some, <laughs> like, are you someone like, who are you really? And I said, I'm pen I,
1: name for somebody. Right. Here. Right. Like,
3: right. right. She genuinely thought I was screwing around with her. Um, and I, I said, no, I'm just a guy. I haven't been able to break in. And she goes, what else do you have? And I go, well, I got a, I got a short story collection. I got a dark fantasy novel. And she said, send all of it to me. And then Mm -hmm. over the course of like a week and a half, she read everything that I had. Um, And then she decided that she was going to work with Rob Carroll. um, And they were going to build dark heart. Um, Now I had, I had originally uh, sold all these subtle deceits to another publisher. Right. Mm -hmm. And dark heart, said, well, we would like it as a series because the original publisher was like, hey, man, I didn't sign up to do a series. Like, I can't promise to do a series, which I totally understood. Okay, We, we parted ways, um, and Darkheart uh, picked up the series, bought the rights to the series, uh, and they've been extremely supportive of doing uh, all five books in the series. Um, and there's a lot of exciting things coming down the road for Blackwell's. Nice. I was
1: going to ask about the other publisher because yeah, I, mean, I didn't
3: know if we could bring like, it up or
1: not. But but I I'm won't name names. <laughs> but, don't name I names. I won't name names. But I know it was like close to being pre-order or whatever with the other publisher because it was on Amazon or correct. It was, oh, was, it.
3: Pre, it was pre-orderable <laughs> and it actually went out in a Nightworms package before oh. the the copyright was transferred over to Darkheart. Oh, so there's some
1: there's some yeah. uh, some ones worth a lot of money then, right? <laughs> the, the, well, with the other we, publisher on we the live X. in hope <laughs> that one day
3: it will be. <laughs>
1: so was that surprising to you that a publisher picked up a five book series like that? Or I, it might not have been five books at the time but a series like
3: that. it, it is certainly surprising um and I have to attribute this all to Sadie. Mm-hmm. Um Sadie believes vehemently in my work. Um and I'm very deeply appreciative of that. Um, And, uh, and so she, after she read all these subtle deceits, then three months later, I wrote all the prospect around us and I sent that to her and she's like, well, we need to do both. We need to do this whole series through dark heart. And I Mm -hmm. said, great, wonderful. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, the, or dark heart has purchased, uh the rights to the first two books in the series were negotiating for the rest for the rest of everything um, but i really can't express how much their support at dark heart and the investment into the series that they've placed there they've been tremendously professional um and also very uh transparent with me about hey you're a first like you're an you're a no name author And we're Mm -hmm. footing the bill to put you out into the world. Like we got to sell some. That's a gamble, right? I was a huge gamble, and I still am. Um, You know, I like every author uh, that's in my position. Sometimes we struggle to earn out, and that is a hard reality of uh, small press publishing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing everything that I can. I know that they are doing everything that they can, and we're working hard to make the series as successful as we all want it to be.
0: I don't know if you could have found a more respectable oh, prominent figure in yeah. the horror community. Without question. Than, than Sadie. I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, people she, that people that are not into horror know who she is. Probably, yeah. Right. Yeah. So.
3: Right. I mean, and it was, it was a random chance. Like I just sent her my work and she's, she, I remember she read the first chapter and she just sent me like this. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, it, who are you? Like, are you, are you fucking with me? And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not somebody, you know, like I'm just, I'm a nobody who has worked really hard at trying to be, you know, trying to find, uh, that Icarus point of trying to find, uh, I'm trying to find a place in horror where, you know, I really do want to be to horror what CS Lewis was to fantasy. Like that's Uh a career goal of mine. And that's, it's not really pretentious to say, but it's certainly a lofty goal. And I hope people will give you that opportunity to do that.
1: And that's a that's a testament to how much Sadie and Darkheart they believe in your work. To right, you know, like you said, you are a new author, and to I don't want to say take the gamble, but to put their investment in you at risk. That, you yes, know,
3: it's an, it's like an enormous risk without question.
0: Yeah, I said we do a reading. Are, are you up for a reading tonight? I don't.
3: I'm always up for a reading. It all depends on what you want, baby. What, what, I'm here what for are, you.
0: What are we going to read, Brad? Did you want to pick hey, one, or did he, you guys? pick one that you wanted to
1: seth can read whatever he wants he killed it on what he was on with sadie and james roundtree I know. doing the yellow you have a comic, comic book you yellow
3: want to read no i'm kidding a comic book. no i did <laughs> so i started off in comic. I, I started pictures. off in comic books right i know did, i know right
0: that's right why, that's why I you want to show the pictures why you do it? No. uh oh, absolutely he's I got mean, the absolutely. space
1: erotica jay that he's been working on
3: hey that's a secret project <laughs> oh, i'm sorry let's I'm sorry. keep sorry. that well, on the okay. low low okay.
1: There's a thirty second delay. We'll chop that part out. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> I,
0: I've been working on that for three years now to get that code. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> I will say, your reading the other day was fantastic. You were like super into it and doing the voices and the characters. It was a
3: great reading you did with Sadie the other day. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. So I have all three of my books, uh, and so my thanks to Dark Heart and Cemetery Dance. They both they sent me my author copies. Nice. Um. I think there's one I'd like to read. It's actually from all the prospect around us. That's, um, yes, whatever you want to do, man. Which is if the second are... book Thanks. in the series. Uh, and so I, I always like to preface it by saying uh, these are re- like there are elements of religion in them, but that is in no way a declaration about what I believe to ascribe to people to be an objective truth, or it mm-hmm. is in no way a proselyta- proselytation uh, to proselytize any people toward a certain religion. Uh, but I think this would be great. I can either read the cold open uh, or I could read uh, a chapter. It's entirely up to y'all.
1: The cold. Do the cold open.
3: I'll do yeah, the cold open. Do that. Okay, that, great. That's sometimes a little bit more suspenseful. and leaves us hanging. Right. So. <laughs> so this is the cold open from all the prospect around us. From a crow's view. The road leading to Blackwell's Colorado is a winding trail that coils through a green expanse of spruce, pine, and alder. A narrow gray serpent slithering this way and that through a forest set in, set in the shadow of a stone god known as the Astolot Mountain Range. From its peak, the range slopes precipitously, crescent-shaped, like the shattered bowl of some long-dead titan of myth. The city itself is an incongruous lattice of dark streets that delta into darker alleyways populated by the homeless, the infirm, and every other kind of societal burden accumulated by human civilization. It is a city abundant in oil, minerals and all manner of wealth that can be harvested from the dying corpus of the earth. Blackwell's, like the other wealthy cities in America, has the fertile charms that shine in affluent veneer, and the pains and sorrows and secrets. Secrets most of all, it is a city of demons and light, angels and blood, fetterless slaves and their reclining masters robed in prodigal opions. This, the buildings stand as one press of art deco architecture, a squashed mass of stone that shines in the summertime sun and never more pristine than when the winter snows swirl from the mountain to hide their soot soiled facades. All this human-crafted glory stands atop something older, something buried beneath the snow-blanketed topsoil and above the wells of oil from which the city derives its name. Below these spaces of the living, within an earthen tomb housing the immortal, exists a creature much older than Blackwell's, something old and vast beneath the unsuspecting masses, an entity of voracious hunger. And that's the cold open from all the prospect nice. around us.
0: I like to opens because they are just kind of leave questions or hanging around and floating around, leaving you like on a cliffhanger. And you're like, okay, let's hop, let's hop into it. So
3: Right. And I typically don't like to do a prologue because um, okay. I've always really enjoyed like I don't I mean, it's not to say I haven't used a prologue, um, but I've always liked the idea of doing a cold open and it's in many ways what Steinbeck does in East of Eden with his opening mm-hmm. chapter about the Salinas Valley, he sets all of the landscape and then he goes into the people that populate it. And so that's mm-hmm. a direct influence from him. Yeah.
0: Before you did that, you, you mentioned that uh, it involves some religion, but you're not. Mm-hmm you know, staying, saying which way, which direction to go. Correct. Was that ever a worry in your head? To, okay. If I dive into this, that I'm going to get some kickback mm-hmm. from people thinking, okay, I don't know what I'm talking about, or I'm mm-hmm. trying to put my propaganda onto somebody or.
3: It is always, uh, it is an always in my heart fear that people will think, that because I am ascribing certain power to certain themes or mythologies mm. that I am attesting what they should or should not believe in. Right. Um, and that is not the case. And now I can only say that so much without people being like this book talks about Jesus way too much. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there are, there is a central mythology that revolves around a Judeo Christian identity uh, but that is certainly in no way uh, it is it's not in any way for me to try and convert people to any particular belief system. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted to deal with trauma. I wanted to deal with religion, uh, not just because of the experiences of my own life, but because theodicy, um, uh, us asking the question of why bad things happen if there is a benevolent God who loves us? Why do bad things? Why does he, why do they, he or she, or they um, allow those things to happen? And these books are a, are a direct, uh, I don't want to say treatise. That's a super pretentious as fuck word for it, (laughs) but it is an examination of those questions. And I hope that people who have been disaffected or abused by the, Evangelical church in the United States and its persistent need to hurt people. Um, I hope that they will be able to receive some type of catharsis through these books.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I find that so interesting because, like, when it when it comes, like, I had to take uh, some religion courses in mm-hmm. college, but when it comes to religion and organized religion, you know, I'm dumbfounded. I'm I'm ignorant. I don't know because I was not brought up. In mm-hmm. a certain kind of raising, I guess, but I get such a kick out of the religious horror trope. You know, I love the Exorcist movie, and sure. Conjuring, and all that stuff that's based. You know, that the main horror is around something to do with religion. And half the time, I'm lost on what actually is happening, and it sure my wa- makes my wife crazy. You know? <laughs> she knows she knows some religious stuff, you know? and I was not brought up like that, you know, and I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm ignorant when it, I don't know a lot of religious stuff, you know, so I'm, I'm just, I'm going to kick out of the, this, the, the trope and I do reading, you know, uh, your stuff. I'm like, Hey, you know, this is cool. It's like the, kind of like the exorcist a little spin on it, you know, and, but I don't know anything about religion, but I, it's still someone as dumb as
3: me. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> we certainly get, wouldn't say dumb. I mean, when it well, comes to religion, I'd we say, can dumb. Really get, I'd say, we yeah. say dumb. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. So. Well, no. And I think, uh, if we can't, if we can't make these questions approachable, then what is Mm -hmm. the point in having the conversation? Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm for having those conversations. I want people uh, who believe vehemently in their belief system to approach these books and challenge them. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I I hope that they will. I hope that they raise questions as to why we allow certain things, why we excuse certain types of behavior, because Mm -hmm. we're a certain type of country. Um, Not to speak for the whole fucking country, but we're a certain type of country when it comes to uh, the evangelical right in the nation. And I believe that a part of being a responsible custodian of the American character, being a part of it means asking hard ass questions. And if we can't ask them, then we're either too afraid, you know, we're too afraid to ask them. And we have to. I think that's very important it's like the one big
0: question that's the most simplest question but can never be answered correctly and that's mm-hmm. just why yeah
3: yeah yeah <sighs> Ste- Stephen Colbert has Ooh, your money great...
0: Brad didn't
3: I <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Colbert has a great quote that I love I love um where he says like my Christianity is not in any and I'm paraphrasing to be clear, he says, my Christianity is not to meant to, not meant to be an edict. It is simply that I understand there is a mystery to the universe. And my religious belief is the appreciation of that mystery. Mm-hmm. It's the examination of it through a certain lens. And I think that's uh, that hits it dead on. It's very much like Dostoevsky, who said that, you know, my faith is not born out of a, you know, a childlike faith, but it's born out of a furnace of doubt. And I, yeah. I think that's appropriate.
1: James uh, was talking about your reading earlier. Great job. You almost sound like Casey Kasem reading that. <laughs> it's Casey
0: Kasem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he says uh he was raised Roman Catholic and was an altar boy. That's why the exorcist bothered him so much. I can see that.
2: Yeah.
1: To and to me, I think I think the demonic like religious stuff like the exorcist and like all the subtle seats, that is the the most unsettling horror for me. I don't know something about it is just it's like it's Oh, cuz it could be cuz it could be real could be all right. real because you know, right. it and talks it, about demons and all that stuff in the Bible. It's like, you know, that I would believe that more so than, you know, vampires and, <laughs> and all that crap. Right. There's, I don't know. Something, there's just something more, I don't know, authentic the, about
3: it. If that's the right word, even there's a, there's a fear that stems from the root inside of us of the fear of loss of agency mm-hmm. where I am no longer in charge of me. Something else decides for me mm-hmm. and that's a very very it's a type of horror that touches a certain nerve and it's a very raw nerve when it gets touched
0: yeah yeah it's such a sensitive st- subject for so many people right really and, you know and uh th- this corner of uh religious chat brought to you by uh <laughs> i don't know local church or whatever so right <laughs> like
1: like even like i watched my wife and I watch those ghost shows, and and like I don't believe in ghosts, but the ones where they have like, I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I know what you just, mean, the shows are fascinating, but like it's, I'm not there to see it. It's on TV. You're probably making it all up, but sure. they do like the demonic voices and stuff. Like sometimes it gives me chills. Like uh, that really freaks me out sometimes.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't know what it is. I don't know. But like I said, I don't believe in any of it. I think it's well, all something. Fake. Something. I also have never, I've never experienced anything myself to make me believe. Someone like I have to see it to believe it. And I've yeah. never had those experiences.
0: You know, one day about, when it happens, one day, you know, the come on and like, oh my gosh, guys, you won't believe what just happened. The yeah. du- the dust orb flew by. Right. Yeah.
3: Right. No. Well, actually, that's an artifact that the camera just caught. <laughs> yeah. But
0: no, I think you. That's you, just a dirty lens, really. Right, just yeah. dirty,
3: right. It's not a fairy going across the screen. <laughs> um, but I think you touch on something that's important, Brad. And I think it's important for writers to remember that something doesn't need to be real in order for it, in order for it to strike true. Like yeah, those are two different things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hamlin's got a, a good question here. Uh,
1: Speaking of the subject and demonic possession, was wondering if CS had a view on the origin of demons,
3: fallen angels, or departed souls of the Nephilim. Sure, there are multiple mythologies about how an, uh, how angels come about, what the fall was like, what the you know what the fracturing of heaven was like. Um, Where the Nephilim uh, come from. And you can get into, you know, uh, Judeo mysticism. You can get into the the Sephiroth and Kabbalah. And you can get into the Lesser Key of Solomon and all those types of things. And you can get into, and that's one of the beautiful things about there being a great history uh, of this mythology is that, you know, a great deal of Americans don't know that they get their conception of hell from Milton. They think mm-hmm. it comes from the text of the New Testament. Um, but primarily a lot of what we understand or what we believe about these places is drawn from fiction. And this is not to say that like the New Testament, that there aren't elements of fiction to it. Or the, you know, I'm not ascribing a particular truth onto anyone, despite my personal beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do find like the hierarchy of hell, um, uh, you know, the idea of dukes and archdukes of there being uh, tears to power in hell i've always found that very interesting um because of course if there's going to be any place that has some sort of legalistic administration it's going to be <laughs> the nine circles of hell on the cliffs yeah. of perdition <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you do touch on that just a little bit in uh, all these subtle seats did you do mm-hmm. a lot of religious research and stuff for the for the series
3: yeah so i'm a historian i say i say i'm not really a historian by trade but i my degree uh from the university that i went to that I will not mention because they are biased against transgendered peoples uh so they can go uh fuck themselves but <laughs> uh i got my uh degree in uh history and mm-hmm. or i double double majored in history and biblical history um Cause I thought I was going to be a minister in a church for a long time. Um, and, uh, but I look at I you have, now, <laughs> look at me now horror author. Yeah. Right. Uh, much to the, much to the terror of the people in my, uh, my church family. Send me your books. <laughs> oh, I do. I, you know, I, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, really interesting thing. Like in the Christian community, at least here, I should say in the Southern, in the Baptist tradition here in Texas, Mm -hmm. Um, there is always an aversion to, well, I don't read books like that. I don't, mm -mm, I don't, I don't let that into my life. You know, I just, I just, I don't mess with evil powers and, you know, fiction that uh, espouses those types of things. And I think that's all bullshit. I mean, I love those people. um, But I think that there's a reason there, there has to be, there has to be an element of darkness to all to all mythology, to all theology. Mm -hmm. And we have to be willing to delve out into that. Someone has to be I've I've talked about this before. Someone has to be holding a lantern out in those dark spaces or you don't you don't reach out to people who have experienced religious trauma in the communities that have deeply affected or traumatized them. And those people matter and they Mm -hmm. should have a voice. No, they do have a voice and that voice should be listened to. I believe in I believe that very firmly. It's uh,
1: Ronald Ronald Kelly. He's a Christian, mm-hmm. and he says his church is kind of like weird about the horror right? the horse stuff that he writes.
3: Yeah, they're all the and puritanical he, horse shit that they've been holding on to for three hundred years.
1: Yeah, I think he's in Tennessee, so he's
0: also in the South.
3: Oh, uh, okay, <laughs> I get it. I get it.
0: Yeah. All right, we, we got we got to get off. It just got too deep for me on <laughs> yeah but, right. so, let's, let's so before we start, well, let's <laughs> we'll
1: switch over to the western stuff but before we switch over i want to ask who does the covers for the Blackwell series because i love the covers for those
3: so the first uh the first uh cover was done by matthew Rivera, mm-hmm. uh who did an incredible job on it the second book uh all the prospect around us was designed and done by rob carroll uh who is you know one of the principal owners of dark Heart. okay because they look like and
1: i don't i'm not a art historian but they look like old school like they are Gothic specifically right. drawn yeah, yeah kind of look, they're yeah. drawn
3: from doom paintings okay. uh so the the first one is of course like a woman being pulled up you know pulled over by a demon the idea of the possession and the second one is actually Cain and Abel okay. um and and Cain and Abel play a very important thematic element in the second book do you have the covers to show up to yeah hold yeah up? of course so I've covers. got all these subtle deceits here hold on
1: let me uh Put you up. There we go.
3: So, here's all these subtle deceits, which also includes the bonus story, The Crusade of the Black Cross, which is a nice take on or it's sort of a sequel to Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. Okay, and then I've got all the prospect around us, which you can see Cain and Abel there. Yeah, and my Both those to- covers
1: just look very like have that religious tint. Yeah, to
3: them. absolutely do.
1: Nice revert to Jan's Children of the Dark. I, think. I yeah. yeah,
3: I believe uh Matthew also did Jonathan's Children of the Dark, which is coming out through Cemetery Dance via reprint, and then he's got a sequel coming out. Sequel's coming out, yeah. Yeah.
1: So we'll dive into the westerns. And watching you with Sadie and Josh Roundtree the other day, I got a sense that you are a big fan of, of westerns and mythology and stuff like that. So we'll play a play some western trivia. Mm,
0: this is I, I've be, not seen these be questions. Bad. Yet. Yeah. And this well, is Brad, Brad hides these questions for me sometimes. Too. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is
1: like real life, like about Billy the Kid and Annie Oakley, like the real, I'm the do real West. <laughs> so we'll play some Wild West trivia, guys.
2: <laughs>
0: that was a pretty good one, Brad. I like it.
1: Good, because like I didn't do a voice. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> All right, let's pull up the trivia here.
0: Let's see. There's our budget for the year, but yeah. That's... <laughs> Thank we had you for to blow it. your budget Seth on Seth was
1: coming. We had to blow it. We had, to, we had it. to do
0: it. I get it. All right, so let's
1: see here. So one of us is
0: drinking Eagle Rare over there and mm. making fancy, intros. fancy. <laughs> All
1: right, number one, Henry McCarty was better known by what nickname? And there are multiple choice if you'd like me to do it. Mm-hmm. Kid Cult, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, or Billy the Kid? So, what's Bill? What's uh, I want to name? say
3: that that is, in fact, Billy the Kid. It
1: is Billy the Kid. Henry McCartney McCarty was born in New York City in 1859, eventually became known as the famous Billy the Kid. Number two, what weapon has become known as the gun that won the
3: West? The gun that won the West is uh Samuel Colt's single action revolver. Uh, they, I believe, hang on, wait, wait, wait unless we're talking about the lever action winchester saddle gun so i'll
1: give you multiple choice there's sharps derringer smith and wesson revolver winchester rifle or the colt peacemaker
3: what is the expression they say the god made man samuel Colt made them equal so i'm going to go with the colt the colt yeah the colt, the colt
2: peacemaker.
1: peacemaker was produced for the first time in 1873 and is known as the gun that won the West. At the time, it was sold for $17. Mm. Crazy.
3: I'm glad you can't buy one now for $17. <laughs> 17 oh, you no. got a problem.
0: Uh, on Pawn Stars, the best I can do is <laughs>
3: <laughs> right. The <laughs> best I can do is twenty-seven fifty. I, I, I got a buddy. <laughs> Let me call my buddy over.
1: <laughs> Who is the only woman known to have robbed a stagecoach? Is it Annie Oakley, Pearl Hart, Sarah Pierce, or Poker Alice?
3: I don't know if Annie Oakley robbed a stagecoach. I know that she was in Wild Bill Hickok's traveling show. I want to say Pearl. I'm going to say Pearl. Pearl. Am I wrong? Right? You are right.
1: Yeah. On May 29th, 1899, Pearl Hart and a man named Joe Boot, probably yeah. an alias. Top Globe Arizona Stagecoach and Tommy Socks
3: the- third <laughs> third person in the in the gang
1: says they stole about four hundred dollars. But what's it, is this the right one? Yeah, she felt bad, so she gave everyone a dollar back so they could have money for food. Isn't that sweet? It's <laughs> so nice. nice of her,
3: right? So nice of Pearl. Her
0: cautious got to her.
1: Yeah. What percentage of women living in Deadwood, South Dakota, in eighteen seventy six were prostitutes? or 30%?
3: Deadwood was an unincorporated territory in the Dakotas, so there wasn't any regulation. You said 70%, 90%, and 30%? 70, 50, 90, and
1: 30.
3: But they also had a lot of female landowners... In Deadwood. Uh, I'm going to say 30%. It's, it's estimated that 90%. Shh, I went the wrong way. Living Shit. in
1: 1876 were prostitutes. They were the it's difficult sport, for, man. I'd say uh, the ones that were landowners, though, probably owned the brothels, though, a lot of times. I was anyway. going to say, that'd be
0: a, a convenient way of uh, running the uh, show. Yeah,
1: it's, it's uh, Damn it. Madam Dirty M and Madam Mustachio. Mm. Two of the atoms on here.
3: I'm sorry I we broke the perfect it's okay. Uh-huh. Hey, you're Puck still you're up. doing a lot better
1: than most people are doing right now. <laughs> Number five, how long did the gunfight at the okay corral last? Was it Not one long. minute, one minute, thirteen seconds, thirty minutes, thirteen minutes, or thirty
3: seconds? It's fast. Um that one minute, 13 seconds is screwing on because it's so like, what somebody <laughs> have a stopwatch? So, smart, so precise. Yeah. 30 minutes, 13 minutes, 30 seconds, or one minute, 13 seconds. But I bet it's, I bet someone report, that sounds like something that the the tombstone reporter would have said. The gunfight lasting only one minute and 13 seconds, <laughs> as people say. Uh, I'm going to go with one minute, ah, but 30 seconds. Go with your it's gut. So, go it's with your it's gut so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go one minute, 13 seconds.
1: 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Oh, you told him
3: to go <laughs> with of my gut. <laughs>
1: that's crazy, because that's so famous. It's like, pow, it's over. It's right.
3: It's, you can go. It's bang, 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 fight's over.
1: That's wild. It took place at 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 26th in 1881. Number six. You're still doing good so far, though. In poker, what is known as the dead man's hand?
3: Aces and eights.
0: Oh, I knew that
3: one. Yeah. Jay knew,
1: Jay knew some,
0: uh, Jay's, huh?
3: Hey, Jay's with me on this. I knew, I knew that
0: it. one, only because I gamble. But that's... Jay- <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's a drinker and a gambler, right? <laughs> a real degenerate. My wow. kind of guy.
0: <laughs> God, he's
1: an Ohio State fan. He's absolutely a degenerate. Yeah, we're building a lot tonight, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> right. Jack McCall shot and killed Wild Bill Hickok, Hickok while playing poker. Uh, Let's see what number seven, what outlaw wrote his own press release for one of his robberies. I got a kick out of this one.
3: Oh, that's uh
1: Jesse James. Yep. Jesse James took great delight in his notoriety and once went so far as to write his own press release (laughs) Yeah, and handed it to the engineer of the train. He was robbing.
3: Yeah. Isn't that great?
1: That's great. That's Mark. Talk about, talk about uh, pretentious, (laughs) right? Let's see, we'll Hi, do, Jesse we'll do...
3: James. You probably heard of me. Put this in tomorrow's paper, would you? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll do. We'll do two more. Okay. Which outlaw's body was sold to a traveling carnival show and exhibit, exhibited as a sideshow curiosity? Is it Bill Doolin, Hoodoo Brown, Sam Bass, or Elmer Elmer McCurty? Which outlaw's body was sold to a traveling carnival and exhibited as a sideshow curiosity?
3: Was it Hoodoo?
1: It was Elmer McCurdy.
3: Elmer McCurdy. In
1: 1911, Elmer robbed a passenger train. He thought contained thousands of dollars, but was disappointed. He only made away with forty-six bucks, and then they Mm. shot him right afterwards. (laughs) A (laughs) hell
3: of a thing to get shot over.
1: He had a bad day, right? It says his body was exhibited as a curiosity for about 60 years. That's crazy.
3: Not good. Not what you want. At the end, I bet it was just rancid. I just bet it was falling nasty. apart. Yeah.
1: Like an old mummy or something. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll end with this one. This one's. Don't say it's one. easy
3: because then I'll fuck it up.
1: <laughs> Who was the first sheriff of Deadwood, South Dakota?
3: Uh, should be Sheriff, uh, Seth Bullock.
1: Seth Bullock. Your namesake, Seth, right? That is correct. <laughs> the demand for law enforcement grew following Wild Bill Hickok's murder, and Seth Bullock's background made him the logical choice for Deadwood's first sheriff. Yeah, nice. You did pretty good, man. That's pretty good. You only <sighs> missed two. Fuck. We've had some people that miss everything, and it's just a <laughs> complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, man. That's why I don't. Do, I don't. Do, I don't do the questions. Jay's not allowed
1: to do the questions. the questions. So I have to bring it up because I bring it up a lot. We had a Christmas special, mm. and Jay did <laughs> trivia. It was all about the movie. Um, a Christmas vacation, and mm-hmm. no one had had ever seen the movie, so no one had any idea what he was talking about.
0: <laughs> we we had a, we had a crime writer on. Oh yeah, and so I was like, okay, let's let's do a trivia game of, of crime movies and stuff. And he hadn't seen. He's any. like, hey, don't watch them. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I I retired from making the questions. So <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Well, J- James said that was as bad as my uncle robbing a bank in Chicago on foot. He, of course, got caught.
3: Yeah.
0: That's tough. You don't, you
3: don't have a wheel, man? That's tough. You think, Double you tough. think you're think you
1: going to get thousands of dollars, you get 46 bucks, and you in the back. Like, you
3: think you're going to have like stacks of money? but really you just got a little bit thicker wallet yeah. at that point?
0: I got Not enough good. to buy a pizza now. So, <laughs> really.
1: Yeah, he could buy him that Colt 45 back then. He'd buy three of those, and he'd it'd, be good to go. It'd
3: be great. Have a whole brace of pistols on him for his whole <laughs> affair.
1: So, are you a are you a big Western fan going into your the Light Sublime trilogy?
3: Very much so. I think that the Western is one of the it's one of the great American contributions to literature, mm-hmm. um, and I think that two of the very best American novels ever written are westerns, um, which are Lonesome Dove and Blood Meridian.
1: Okay, mm-hmm.
2: I've um, read Blood
3: Meridian. I have not read Lonesome Dove yet yeah blood meridian is probably the best book written since it's probably the best american novel written since moby dick like if there was mm-hmm. going to be a moby dick of our time it's probably and again this is all my opinion i'm not trying
0: to well, we need a list from you like you got a list from the person that helped you learn how to write oh yeah, yeah. We, we need your list so yeah want to send that <laughs> if you want to go ahead and send that to us email it over to us we'll well, you know your, your quintessential or westerns or that yeah. you need the to read. Quintessential just, westerns yes, humble list. Well, I mean, just not just westerns, but any any your your list anything? Hell yeah, books. I'll
3: make a list. I'll make yeah. I'll make a fucking list. Top ten. Do it like Dave Letterman. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's do, we can do, that. we'll
1: do Yeah, get all your get all your cards and yeah. Stay.
3: Right. your cards <laughs> number eight. <laughs> yeah, <he's playing laughs> the, so
1: what is yeah. it about the Western for you that you wanted to dive in and tell your own western stories?
3: It is. Without question, the romance. Um, I think that one of the one of the losses of American literature, at least from my perspective, has been as we have grown more cynical as a as a country. um, And rightfully so with the things that have been happening over the last 40 years, um, the Western got lost um, and and. it happened because of a series of of events and a lot of it has to do with people love the Western, you know, going into the twenties, the 1920s, thirties, forties, it was a huge draw at the cinema. And then uh, Sergio Leone's spaghetti Westerns come along and they're building upon the dark, you know, the darker mythology of things. They get weirder and weirder. And then Clint Eastwood comes out with, uh, or I should say, uh, Lonesome Dove comes out. And it reinvigorates the romance of the Western. Then Blood Meridian comes out and it deconstructs and destroys every element of the romance that <laughs> Larry McMurtry's novel uh, put on such indelible display. Mm-hmm. And then Clint Eastwood comes along and he, or I should say Lonesome Dove gets made into a television miniseries and just mm-hmm. absolutely captivates the country again with Augustus McCray and Woodrow call and then Clint Eastwood did unforgiven. And that sort of was like, okay, we're going to finally deconstruct the Western totally. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. And then you see after unforgiven the Western struggles to find its place. Now there are examples of it showing up in popular culture with tombstone uh, Appaloosa, even to a certain extent, and then of course into the funky stuff like by uh, Sam Raimi with uh, the Quick and the Dead. You yeah, know, I like it, the Quick and the Dead. Yeah. Uh, everybody loves the Quick and the Dead because it's so stylized. Gene Hackman is in this silly movie and he's selling it like going <laughs> for the the Oscar in it by playing yeah. this malicious character that he's so good at. Um, and then there are so many horror westerns uh, that then yeah. start start to come out. Things like the Burrowers. Um, which is a really underrated uh, weird western, um, and then you have movies like Bone Tomahawk, where again Kurt Russell shows up just to yep. remind us that you know I can still do this. That movie was uh,
1: absolutely it, brutal. It is
3: vicious. It is one hundred percent vicious, uh, and I love it. Uh, I love that, and I also love you know Quentin Tarantino decides to show me goes Hey, you know I've done all these other fucking movies. Hey, check out when I do. A, I'm going to do two westerns. But and I will J-
1: really like both of his too.
3: Yeah, and I, I Django Unchained is one of my favorite westerns of all time, and I love the cinematography of the Hateful Eight. Yeah, um, it's, it's I mean it's still a masterclass, especially in dialogue, but it feels so much more like a play in terms of the blocking. They're all, the, every, they're all in the cabin. All one yeah. space, right? So, I mean the reason that I love the Western is because of the romance. I love Mm -hmm. the idea of not of perfect white hatted people, Mm -hmm. um, but because there's so much dignity that you can restore um, to characters who have traditionally been disenfranchised by the genre. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why most of the primary characters in my Westerns, they're female they are persons of color. Um, there, there are obviously, uh, white characters in it that play significant roles. Um, but I love injecting. I love talking about Texas landscapes. I'm from West Texas and there's not a whole lot in West Texas. Um, but the sunsets and the sunrises are without question, some of the most beautiful things you will ever see. um, And so I love injecting that part of my life into books because I live in Texas and Texas is a tough place to live right now for a person with my predilections toward political leanings. Um, But though it is hard for me to love Texas, I will always be a Texas writer. Mm -hmm. And so writing about Texas in the old West as a sort of love letter to people like Larry McMurtry, Elmore Leonard, uh Joe R. Lansdale. Um, it's it's uh it's in, it's important to me on a visceral level. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a long ass way to say I <laughs> well, really love but, but it was,
0: it's it's interesting because you're mentioning it's the romance of it, and with it being a horror western. A lot of times romance is lost in horror books, you know, but just saying that may make someone read your stuff from a different view. You know what I mean? Because now they're looking for the romance and seeing how you capitalize on that and see how you highlight the romance of it. Right. Oh, okay, so this is what he was talking about. Instead of just looking for the kills and the, the, right. I'm, the, the I'm, demons and the monsters and the horror stuff, you know. Right, so. and
3: I and I think, spl- I think splatter westerns are important. Um, I think that they provide a certain outlet and a certain uh, capacity that people love to... It, when we focus on the gunfights, the action, the revenge western, you know, yeah. those things are important. They're They're important to the genre as a whole. But ultimately when I'm writing a Western, I want people to fall in love. And I don't necessarily just mean like, and so I put characters together and they fall in love. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not that sort of romance. I mean, the type of romance you feel when you watch the search, you know, and, and I know that, you know, that I'm just, uh, trying to be explicit in that. There's a certain hardness and a certain type of rude beauty that can only be found in the Western. And I really truly love digging into that and showing people that landscape. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's like the innocence with Annie and Oren, their friendship together. And right. what happens with a little bit with Carson and Annie later on in the book. Right. It's just kind of all struggles. Like, oh, it's just this just gorgeous woman. And just, <laughs> like, he's just, just not to give, too, I won't give it too much away, but like he's seen some stuff and he's done some stuff. And then just, is like, he's just dumbfounded, not even dumbfounded, but like, he's just like, He's, yeah, I mean, like well, how gorgeous she is!
3: Yeah, he's he's awestruck.
1: Yeah, a, That's a good word. for it. You're the writer. You. <laughs> <you're> the writer. <laughs>
3: it's a, it's a really interesting moment. The first uh-huh. time, at least, and I can only speak from a from the male perspective. Um, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a very interesting moment that happens inside of the heart of a person when they see what they find beautiful and they remember it for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I remember that moment very vividly. Um, and so there are moments inside of the book that try to capture that sensation that we all felt when we were very young. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think that that's wonderful. I think Westerns can, uh, can provide that as well as any sort of romance novel can. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's in the, for me, the Western is the nostalgia and like the sense of exploration.
1: I love, heading out west and exploring new territories and stuff. That's what really entices me with the Western. And you have that here with with yours because Yellow Hill is this place no one goes. It's this awful place <laughs> off by itself. And then there's right. just all this this cosmic stuff going on. Did you did you originally set out to inject the horror into it? Or was it going to be a straight Western at first and then it just sort of bled to the? Because you sort of go like full on cosmic by the end of it. Yeah, I guess, would you consider it cosmic? Or would you consider
3: it, it is else? certainly cosmic horror? Okay. Yeah, without question. Uh, it's a mixture of I do all I, I like to do all three. I like to do paranormal, supernatural, and cosmic horror. And I like to blend that all together and just pour it out. Yeah, because you've got the just, vampire in there too, who's on the cover. So yeah, you've got the I do, vampire in there, James. I do love uh Sigurd of Antioch. Sigurd, uh, yeah. He was he was great. <laughs> I think I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I think that. Uh, it is certainly cosmic horror, and it as it as it goes along, the paranormal, I should say, the supernatural elements and the cosmic horror elements actually start to fight for primacy in the novel as to who is the biggest antagonist for the book, um, and that's intentional. And uh, it it certainly plays out to a what I believe to be a really satisfying climax in uh the light of a black star which is the third book Let's see
1: now you got to write that that one's done already right. you need to give it to me faster so why well,
3: yeah i've read a red winner in the west which is the second book in the series it comes out in july and i should say along with josh roundtree's legend of charlie fish which is an excellent novel everyone should pre-order now from tachyon press and then in november of this year We'll get the light of a black star. Cause my goal was when I sold it to cemetery dance, I said, I want to do it all in one year. I don't want people to have to wait. I want them to have everything. Cause I thank hate, <laughs>
0: I was, was going to say, welcome. thank you. For, uh, people were say thank you for that. So, <laughs> so.
3: I hate making people wait to finish the story. I believe that if, if people enjoy the story, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to unreasonably wait for mm-hmm. that story to come to its conclusion. Right. And that reasonability varies from series to series with certain <laughs> expectations.
1: James is, he's buying
0: from the Texan. He's getting your books. For
3: now. <laughs> Thanks, James. I appreciate it.
0: See now, just describing that. I want to jump in. Like I, I don't think I've dived. Jay's, a, has, Jay's into, a Western hater. I'm not, Western. I'm not, I'm not, I had a couple, like two or three bad experiences where I read a, a couple of popular Westerns. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't care much for him, so yeah. it kind of you know. What sour- did you read? Pretty- if I can ask, well, Whoa, uh, drop it, Jane. <laughs> he he read or, one that I really loved, yeah. The one I want, I won't mention that one, but the Stephen King one, uh, what's the first one in the, the Gunslinger? Yeah, I, I was
3: kind of like, that's more dark fantasy than it is Western, yeah, but there are certainly Western elements there's, in there's it. There's
0: another one I read when I was younger that. I think i might have been forced to read it for school mm, now we're starting <laughs> it, to get to it, the root of it yeah. so I don't, I don't think I've, I, it's just i haven't discovered the right ones yet i think sure is, so but and I that's mean, okay the way, yeah. the, way, the way the way you were describing what attracts you to the restaurants i'm like maybe i'm looking at it from a different point now so
3: well maybe you will maybe you won't i hope right. so. so who knows i don't know, you know right Jay, find, I, think to do I, first.
1: I think you'll enjoy the mascot at yellow hill it was a lot of fun it's really good
3: I love hearing that, that it's fun. That's that's what I care. That's what I care about. I care about people saying like, cause obviously I'm trying to throw my full weight into it and trying to make a mark as a writer. But at the same time, if it's a slog and you're like, this is getting very self-important, you know, I'm not here to, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to tell people stories that they can hold on to that will matter to them with characters that they'll live with their whole life that's that's it and anything outside of that doesn't reach the icarus point and i don't really give a shit yeah so. like i'm not a
1: fast reader whatsoever but i read massacre yellow hill over the course of three or four days maybe which is it's a fast for it's me. a uh it it it's a quick it, one yeah and you what is uh it's carson how do you pronounce the other one's name tomley is the peace island uh, ptolemy gilbert ptolemy. ptolemy yeah so you i won't say what happened but at the end of a chapter you like tease it like Something bad was going to happen to them. I was like, "No!" Like I just got attached to these guys. <laughs> but the no, way we'll say, you worded that, yeah, the way you worded it was like something was bad was going to happen to them, mm-hmm. which wasn't the case at that point. But I was like, "Oh no!" I really like these dudes. These dudes are cool.
3: And that was Can't the last them. time he ever saw them alive. Yes, I'm glad you knew what exactly what I was talking about. Right.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned earlier you've been professional writer for what 15 years or so mm-hmm. how much have you seen your own writing change or has has it changed i mean from the from when you starting out i know you yeah. learned how to write after you went through your five thousand books you had to read but <laughs> that's what it felt like, like like what have you seen change to get from there to here now i think the in, main styles and stuff
3: yeah so the main thing that needed to change for me is that i was impatient and i would rush through something um stylistically like i stopped caring so much about something impacting not impacting that's not the right word i I began to care more about the beauty um and less about beauty and effectiveness right so i have a, a mantra which is and it when i when i finally came up with it when it hit me i realized what i wanted and that is i write for power and i edit for clarity so during my first drafts when they come out it's all just haymaker <laughs> in terms of effectiveness like i want to i want to bust the reader up so bad um and then at times like i'll i'll throw myself out of the right pov or all of a sudden i'll start describing something that doesn't matter to the reader uh, or it really doesn't matter to the effectiveness of the of the story. And so I write for power, I edit for clarity, and that took a long time for me to to get out of my own way. And like I said, that's about when you do it long enough and you get past your ego and what your hopes are, and you dig down into that well and you can scoop out what your voice is. And when it comes mm. up that water, like the story is just so crystal clear and it can, you're the only person who can do it that way. And I feel that way about other writers, writers who, when you read their work, you know, it's their work. People like yeah. people like Laird, people like, uh, certainly Haley Piper is someone, when you read a Haley Piper book, you're reading a Haley Piper book. Yeah. Um. I would say that about V Castro. I would say that about Laurel Hightower. I would say that about Josh Roundtree. Um, I would say about Catherine McCarthy, who's one of our uh, she's, dark, she's dark, She's tremendous. When you read Catherine's work, I believe Catherine uses quality of light in a story better than anybody. When she talks about color and light, mm-hmm. nobody does it better than her. I would say she has very few peers. Yeah, And then I would say, um, Dr. Adam Pottle, who is he's coming out with his book Apparitions, which I've read. Um, he writes in a certain quality that is it, without question. Like you see the mechanics working and you know that only he can write this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are so many writers right now working with small presses who are like that. I'm like I've been reading Ray Knowles, uh one of her novellas that's gonna be coming out, and when you, when you jump into her first chapter, you're like, this is who you are. I see you. I hear your voice. Only you can do this. And I think that's what every writer finds. And it takes a certain amount of time. It takes a certain amount of effort and it takes a certain amount of self seriousness. And I, and I have to be really careful talking about this. Cause I don't mean, I don't mean taking yourself too seriously. I mean, taking the work seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but when you read those writers and there's certainly many others that I'm not naming, um, but it's all about finding your voice. And when you have your voice, all you can do then is tell a great story Yeah. and you're not, you're not a finished product, right? You can always get better. You can always learn from both your peers and the ghosts of those who came before whose shoulders we all stand on. Right. Mm-hmm. right? Um, But that's really what it's about. It took me a long time to do that. And when you do that, when you find that voice, a writer can feel like they're the very best storyteller in the world when they're on their game. And in that moment, they are right.
1: When, when for you, when do you think you found your voice?
3: I found, have you found it yet? Oh yeah. He's uh, found it. Yeah. I'm, I'm a certain type of writer. Um, and I know what I am. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I really found it when I was, so I wrote the massacre of yellow Hill and I was trying to find it. The massacre of yellow Hill taught me how to write a novel. Cause it was my first novel. And then mm-hmm. I wrote another book that can never see the light of day called winter <laughs> sun. That was so bad that it taught me how not to write a novel. Okay. Um, and I, but I found,
0: can you send that to us just private? I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll,
3: I'll send it. Uh, I'll never let it see the light of day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That, that's locked
0: away in a safe
1: somewhere, right?
3: <laughs> oh, it's delete. I deleted. It's it. gone. I had to. Yeah, and it was a it was a ninety thousand word novel. Um, that I spent a great deal of time on, but I found my voice in that novel. The problem was, it wasn't the right story. The story okay. wasn't good. It was just me dealing with a bunch of bullshit, mm-hmm. um, trying to process stuff, and it just didn't work. Um, and so then after I finished that. I immediately started working on The Threadbare Prince. And I remember while writing the... I just said I don't like to do prologues, but that one's got a fucking prologue. (laughs) But when I wrote the prologue to The Threadbare Prince, I started to hear who I was going to be. I could see at a distance what I wanted to be and more importantly, who I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that really happened during the... So I was probably... And I had written short stories that didn't get sold. So I was probably... 600 700,000 words into writing before I found out what I'm you know what my voice is, you know what yeah. how deep my well goes and what what the quality of water that comes up out of it when trying to tell a story. And now I think I've found it. It's not to say I won't change, you know. Mm-hmm. I uh but I think there's a certain quali- there's a certain je ne sais quoi, shall <laughs> we say? No, we will not say that there's a certain thing that you will only get from me. Yeah. And that is true for every writer who finds their voice. When you come to see a CS humble show, there's a certain kind of show you expect to see and you'll mm-hmm. get it every time.
1: Like with Stephen King, he's written, I don't know, 70 something books, but you can tell no matter where you pick up a book, it's a Stephen King book. Right. Because it'll always start way... with the
3: character's first two names. Yeah. Whether it's all the <laughs> way no. back at Carrie. Or right.
1: Like now he's doing like the, not even the horror stuff, like the mystery detective stuff. Yeah. It still feels like Stephen King. So you can change your, your style. You can change your topic, whatever mm-hmm. you're writing about, but it'll still be, you know, it's your, your voice. voice within it. Yeah.
3: Right. Absolutely.
1: I hope so. You're talking about the prologue fantasy is like, you have to have a prologue. It's just a role. <laughs> like a role. I do. <laughs> I hope that one sees the light of day. Cause it, if that's the one you found, your I would love for it to see I, the light of day. I would, I would like to read that one.
3: I would, I, I would love for it to see the light of day two. I've there. I've sent it to publishers over the years and everybody's just like, Hey man, like it's good, but it ain't for me. Just
1: do like Evan winter did. He, uh, I can't remember what his book is called. The wind of rage of dragons, fire Mm -hmm. dragon, something like that. So he self-pubbed the first one, and then he got picked up by a big publisher to do the second one. I was going
0: to say, there's always the self-pub uh, route. It's which... hard.
3: It's a hard road to yeah. go, because I tried <laughs> self-publishing after I did The Masker. Yellowhill had an original publisher, and then I took the rights back from it. And then I tried to self-publish it, and The Red Winter in the West, I self-published probably three and a half, or I think three years ago. Mm-hmm. In fact, three years ago in May. And guys, it's a hard road. Um and especially
1: I, for fantasy because those are those are right. I think self-pub fantasy is harder to do than like the novellas and stuff with oh, horror.
3: Yeah, because the roster is so deep, the bench is yeah. so deep for people yeah, writing I, I fantasy. Even thought of the, the, it's also the genres. time commitment
1: yeah. too. Like I can read a hundred-page book in you know a couple hours as opposed to taking a week or more for this thousand-page book. That it might be great, it might be awful. Right. It's big in time investment too. Yeah. Right. So with a, uh, Master Yo Hill originally being self-pub. And you're bringing it back. How did well, you? Well, it was
3: originally, it originally went through a publisher. Okay. And so it was traditionally pubs, pubbed originally. And then I took the rights back when they, because I, that publisher actually said, yeah, we want the Threadbare prints too. And then, but we're not going to change your deal. Even though oh, Matt, okay. like I wasn't able to leverage the success of the first book. And I was like, this is not where I want to be. Yeah. Um, and so it was originally tradi- traditionally published. And then I tried to self-publish them. And then I held on to them. And then it goes into the question you asked about Sadie, how it all came about. Yeah, it was um, for dance, right? She read uh, she read the first two books in that light sublime while I was working on the third book in the series, even though it didn't have a publisher because mm-hmm. um, I'm a lunatic. Well, I like um, that
1: you believe in your work enough to be writing these books oh, even to. when
3: there's there's no home for them at the time. You have to, because um, if you don't believe in them, no one else, no one else is going else. to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh but Sadie uh I, I she said I think I just I think I should just ask Kevin if he wants to take a look at these. And I was mm-hmm. like Kevin oo. She was like, "Oh, Kevin Luchet, uh Cemetery Dance." And I was like, "I mean, sure." Yeah. <laughs> and she she reached out. Great she great. said, "Hey Kevin, I read this book, it's incredible. Uh Sadie gave it a stellar review on Goodreads and she introduced me to Kevin, gave the Kevin asked me for the manuscripts. I sent it over to him two weeks later. He's he had read the first book and he goes, I want all three of them. And nice. I go, okay, uh, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll sure. Let me check, see if I'm willing to sign with cemetery dance. <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: This is the no name. No, no one's ever heard of cemetery
3: dance. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great because Kevin read the first book and he goes, yeah, I want to, I want to take all three of them and he, but first he goes. Uh, so the first one was great. Do they get better from here? And I go like, yeah, absolutely. They get better from here. And he goes, okay, let's just, let's just take all of them. <laughs> okay. I love your confidence, Kevin. So that one being
1: your first novel originally did for it to be coming out again now with cemetery dance. Did you do any major changes to it or extensive
3: you... revisions? Okay. Yeah. I did extensive revisions um, and worked very hard to, because my style had grown so much after having written five novels, after I wrote the massacre, yellow Hill, a lot of my stylistic prose had changed. You know, I had certain tools that I didn't have originally.
2: Yeah.
3: And so I worked with Marissa van Uden again, my wonderful editor who is also a bog witch living in the middle of a, <laughs> of a woods. Um, But uh, she went through it and she absolutely eviscerated it. It's one of the most painful, best experiences I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was able to bring that novel to the place I always wanted it to be. I expanded Mm -hmm. it. I made characters better. I added whole cloth sections to the book that people won't find in the original version. And so the new version is the definitive version of it. So even if they read the old one, they should definitely pick up the new one. They should buy the new one.
0: <laughs> That's what they should do. That's what they should do. <laughs> yes.
1: That's James a has place. a question. Yeah. Uh, so do you have most of the story in your head before you start, or is it something you work on kind of along the way? I'd say I want, I want to answer for you. That's your question.
3: <laughs> no, no, go, no, go ahead. What do what you think? Uh, answer for the guest,
1: Brad. Go ahead. If you already had the ending to Black Blackwell's Planned Out, you probably kind of know where
3: you're going, at least a little bit. I know where I'm going with Blackwells. Typically when I start a book, I don't know where it's headed. Um, And Mm -hmm. it always, for me, it has to start with like, um, there has to be a definitive first two paragraphs before I'm willing to commit. Like in those two paragraphs, they have to hit hard and it's got to come from a raw place. Like I've been working on a, a dark fantasy series. It would be, I say working on it. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure it out at the moment. And I, yeah, James says, no, Brad, you tell me about your fucking book series that you wrote. Um, Imaginary but, book series. Imagine, <laughs> but so typically I'm a by the pants writer. Okay, I don't, anytime I like, I make extensive notes, excuse me, but those notes are always about themes. I like to write thematically. I have a certain, belief in the power of love and violence. Those are mm. two thread lines that are through all of my books um, and about shame, trauma, family relationships. Those are all huge, but I'm, when I start, I start with a blank page and I just say, let's see what you got. Like, can you make something more beautiful, more compelling than your last book? And if I don't, if I don't expand every time, if I don't get better every time then I'm, I mean, I'm wasting everybody's time, including my own. So like even with the blank page, like, you know, this blank page is eventually going to be a Western or this
1: blank page is eventually going to be this exorcist story. Or is it just like nothing? You're just going in completely at times.
3: It'll be nothing. Like I was listening to uh, (laughs) this is so silly. I'm always (laughs) listening to music when I'm writing always. Every book that I write has two or three songs that I play on repeat the whole time while I'm writing. Um, and so the other day I was listening to Metallica's Ride the Lightning, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And I was just getting really, really emotional about it. And so I just started writing about this group of guys that were sailing across this ocean to go fight these slavers. And it was just like, we came upon the seas of Anton in a, in a full force of three score thousand. And I was just mm-hmm. like, okay. This is a thing now, and and that hit me in such a way where I was like, Well, now I know who these people are, I already know what they're going to go fight, and that's and that's becoming a book, a book series that I would like to do called A Thousand Nights, A Thousand Boons. Like I was going to ask,
0: what you, what else are you working on aside from these two that we were talking about? About 15 about, different series, <laughs> 15 right. or 20 different series I going love, on at once. I love yeah. that you're doing
1: series because you like I said, with especially with horror, you don't find series very often. They're very right. rare. You'll get a trilogy every night, like Michael Clark's Patience of a Dead Man trilogy is one off the top of my head. Mainly they're standalones. So I like that we get time to invest in these characters along the way, these broader, more epic
3: stories that you're telling. Right. Right. I mean, I appreciate that. I yeah. I uh I I do think that that's something it's challenging in horror because horror has been so well owned by cinema in the last I would say Mm -hmm. 30 years Mm -hmm. so all these franchises get built off of murdering characters and that's fine but something that long-form television is showing us now is that it can be really fun to have a really powerful first act and then a second act that lasts about four seasons worth of television yeah and so that's that's one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm I'm trying to emulate and compete with long form television in a mm-hmm. way that's cinematic and compelling so that people won't feel like they're wasting their time. Like I get it. We've gone to the mountains of such and such. We got the magical, what's the thing. And now we got to go fight the big dark guy up in the sky.
1: That's what right? Jay hears when he thinks fantasy. The <laughs> I, I do. do. What you call
3: it. I
0: do. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah. So no, I mean, I'm, I'm a series writer. I believe in investing very deeply in characters so that when those characters make mistakes and they get pulled off of the board, it is deeply painful Mm -hmm. because I'm, I say this sometimes, you know, I'm here to break your heart. And then at the end of it, I want to put it all back together again so that you'll thank me initially for the, for the hurt (laughs) with a little super glue
0: duct tape. Yeah.
3: Anyway, we can put it all back together.
1: Yeah. I think shows like, like the Sopranos, the wire breaking Mm -hmm. bad, all those shows, you know, being longer form stories like that. Um, Breaking Bad's probably my favorite show ever. Have, it's certainly up there. Absolutely. Changed, yeah. Do you, so are you inspired by, um, obviously, music? You listen to music all the time, but and mm-hmm. you wrote that story with that. But are you inspired by other forms of media,
3: music, movies, Without TV? question. The paintings of Caravaggio, the, uh, the, mu- the, the voice of, uh, uh, Luciano, or uh, Luciano Pavarotti's Nessun Dorma. Uh, I'm deeply affected by the poetry of James or the, the writings of James Baldwin. Uh, I mean, I love Victor Hugo. I love, uh, Shelby Foote, who, though he is, uh, a Southern apologist asshole, he's still one <laughs> of the greatest American writers we've produced in the last hundred years. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm deeply affected by the films of Stanley Kubrick. I love the mm-hmm. the uh, the soundtracks of the late Basil Paladorus, John Williams, obviously. You know, there's you missed Beauty. a Star
1: Wars talk, Jay. You missed it all. I you know, know.
3: Yeah, we, all we did was talk about Jedi's and laser swords. <laughs> 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 That's what
0: I figured. So right. Yeah,
3: but no, I'm my big th- like, like a great example is this. Um, the the film True Romance is one of mm-hmm. the for me. It's one of my favorite Tarantino written. Uh, films and there is a scene in true romance. It's called the Sicilian scene and it's with Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. And it is pound for pound. It is the template in that scene that made Tarantino who he is. He Mm. does certain mechanics in it that you rarely find anywhere else of characters sharing power dynamics. And he does this really cool thing and you'll start to see it in Tarantino's movies where when the power dynamic shifts inside of a conversation, an object gets passed over, passed over to the person who is now taking ownership of the scene. This is most easily seen in Pulp Fiction when the bank robbers are handing over the bad motherfucker wallet back to <laughs> Jules.
1: That's one of the best scenes. Right.
3: Because yeah. they have a gun in Jules's face. And he said, I hate, I hate to disappoint you, but this ain't the first time I've had a gun pointed in my face. Yeah. And then he's screaming at him like he thinks he has the power in the conversation. And then they pull out the, you know, Jules puts a gun on, on the, on, uh, what's his name? Uh, Honey Bunny. And uh, I can't remember that guy's name, but he goes, my wallet's in there. You can't have it. And he's like, which one is it? There's a lot of wallets. And he goes, it's the one that says bad motherfucker. On it. <laughs> and when he hands over the wallet, it's Jules taking complete ownership of the scene. Same thing happens in true romance, but it's with a cigarette and it's with a light. And and as the cigarette goes back and forth in the scene, it is the transference of power of the character deciding I decide what happens. And those those moments like that are deeply they affect me very deeply. They affect my writing style and they affect the way that I approach uh, blocking inside of every story.
1: So to go back to Pulp Fiction, what do you think was in the briefcase? I know everyone's got their own theory. Everyone, but... like,
3: right? There's the—is it the diamonds from uh, Reservoir Dogs? Is it solid gold? Is it uh, the soul of Marcellus that's, Wallace? That's right? probably my
1: favorite one—the <laughs> soul of Marcellus Wallace.
3: I, for me, what's inside of the briefcase is almost inconsequential, mm-hmm. right? Because the idea of the thing is so much better than it being a thing. Right, right, and that—that's not to you know. I'm not trying to evade the question. I think that there are a lot of fun fan theories, um, but for me, that when the look on Vincent's face when he opens the briefcase and he's like, are "We good?" and Vincent says, "Yeah, we're good." Whatever he uh-huh. sees inside, like that to me, like whatever's inside, it makes Vincent Vega who is unflappable. Well, he's not unflappable, especially when he's driving around with a OD. Uh you know, Marseilles Wallace's wife in the car. He's certainly not co- a cool customer. Uh, but the look on his face is what matters, yeah. right? The reaction to me is what carries the weight of that, not the actual glow of mm-hmm. the 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 briefcase.
1: Like the same thing, uh, what's in the box from Seth. What's in the, <laughs>
3: in the box? What's in the right. box? Right.
0: You know what's in the box.
3: <laughs> we know what's in the box.
0: We know what's in the, <laughs> in the box. We know what's in the box. <laughs> Seth. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you all. You've
3: been tremendous. I really appreciate
0: you having me on. We can't thank you enough. Uh, For those in the chat, thanks for hanging out with us. Brad, do you have any other uh, final words? I mean, I'm exhausted just listening to all of the (laughs) 5,000 pieces of work this dude's got coming out. Well,
1: you know, well on the after tears. show, we're gonna go into a deep dive on Andor. So mm. the patrons, mm. let's talk
3: about bit. it. Yeah,
1: but I'm for you, real. We could talk about Andor.
0: You can't, you can't give that away
3: for free. I'm kidding. Right? But, but, that's but not free that's <laughs> content. That's gated content. we
1: you talked a lot about uh, all these subtle deceits and stuff. So pitch uh, real quick before we go. Pitch the Masquer at Yellow Hill and what that's about for people.
3: Sure, the Masquer Yellow
1: your elevator pitch.
3: My elevator pitch: the Masquer Yellow Hill. Um, is a mixture, or I guess you could say it would be if, uh, if Larry McMurtry wrote a story about a couple of kids fighting a supernatural evil uh, while also dealing with family trauma and poverty in the Old West.
1: There you go. It's a lot of fun, guys. There's vampires in it. There's weird cosmic creatures. There's like <laughs> This secret society cult kind of thing. There's a lot of cool mm-hmm. stuff in it. Appreciate it. I'm excited to see where the rest of the two books go. Me too. I hope they're an enormous financial
3: success. <laughs> right. Give him give there him the money, guys. You, Buy his books. Right. <laughs> exactly.
0: There you have it. Cs Umble taking over the horror community because he's releasing everything all at once. <laughs> all within and he's got, a short time and he's got so. the and he's
1: got the backstock to back it up too. I, right. he's, he, right. he's ready to go. I am
0: ready to go. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Thanks for uh, stopping by. Really appreciate it. Our guest, C. S. Umble. Make sure you uh pick up all of his stuff and then Talk all about it and, and spread it around. Where can people find you? Twitter, Instagram, all the fun. You can find places. me on
3: Twitter at cs humble. You can find me on Instagram at cs humble. Um, and uh you, I have a Substack. You can look me up on Substack. And I'm working on thinking about building a Patreon, but I don't know.
0: We'll all see how right. that goes. There we go, everyone. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Till we meet again. It's a wrap. That's freaking
1: out, man. Yeah. Oh. Thank you. Glad you got Love see you,